With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm Tyler, and here joining me today in the Vivid Sea Studio is my coach, Charlie. Charlie, I know you love the trip to Knoxville every couple of years. Are you back, recovered, healthy, ready to go? I did go to bed at um, 8.45 last night, so I'm recovered now. Well, that's not that kind of like normal for you, though? Normal-ish? Well, yeah. Was but it not, was, what time? 9.15, 9.30? Is that your normal if bedtime? If I'm honest, I fell asleep while dinner was in the oven around 7 for a little bit. <laughs> so, uh, you, wait, you fell asleep while it was in the oven? Yeah, I did. I bet that worked out really yeah, well. Yeah, it did. It was just a little crispy. It still so, what time did you get to bed in, in, in Knoxville? Sadly, not that late. I just don't sleep well in hotels. So. What is not that late for you? It was like midnight. For for you? Whoa, that is late for you. That wow, is late. I'm I know. Thoroughly impressed. But I'm glad you're back and you recovered safe from your trip. Um, but I will have to. I have to say, while we were in Knoxville, there were some people calling you out on Twitter. They were taking shots at you for your Calhoun's recommendations. Your beloved. Barbecue pork. Well, for, maybe formerly beloved because we talked about this a little bit over the weekend. But you were you were talking about those barbecue potato skins pretty heavily leading up to Saturday. So, do you care to defend yourself? You got any defense here? I was disappointed. I led you astray. They were not good. The food there in general were they not as good, good as they used to be, or were like they never really that good? But now you're kind of used to them. I don't think any of the food was as good as it has been in the past. So I don't think I'll be returning there. I apologize. Wow. For any recommendations, was that going to destroy your took. your your trip to Knoxville in the future? That was a big part. No, of... because now they have their downtown is growing, or they're getting better restaurants. And you stay at the new Hyatt Place downtown. Yes, it was very nice. nice. Nice rooftop bar, very expensive rooftop yes. bar, but nice. Yes, we all ventured up there, and it was um, interesting and very entertaining. Yeah, always very entertaining. Uh, but all right, so I'm just glad you're back. Uh, so you're done with Calhoun, is that what you're saying? I think so. It's always nice to oh, eat on the water. A but... week after you were telling everyone to go to Calhoun's. Yeah, I know. I was wrong. Flip-flop. It's okay. It's all right. You can, I, I, I appreciate... I have no problem saying I'm wrong. It happens all the time. I appreciate that. In you. I, I really do appreciate that about you. A lot of people <laughs> in this day and age simply cannot do that. But anyway, before we get to the mailbag, I do first want to thank all of you guys for supporting our show as we have transitioned to our new partnership with Overtime Media. It is, I mean, it really is, guys. It's extremely humbling to think that even, like, one person out there wants to listen to us talk Georgia sports. So we are just incredibly thankful for all of you. And we said it before, I'll say it again, our podcast simply would not be in the position it is today without you. That's just a fact. Um, but if you have not already, if you do enjoy the show, it'd be great, it'd be awesome if you would rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or whatever uh, app it is that you listen to the show on. As we begin this new partnership with Overtime Media, we're trying to expand our listener base. And believe it or not, the ratings and reviews on, on those different platforms, especially Apple Podcasts, that's a big part of helping us spread the word. So if you get a minute or two to help us out there, that would be absolutely amazing. But all right, we have 15 or so questions to get through today. So let's go ahead and open this thing up. We did get a couple of overlapping questions. So in those cases, what we did is we just kind of defer to the listener who did not already 
have another question listed on the show. So as always, please, please do not be offended if we left out one of your questions in favor of the same question from another person. We're not trying to play favorites. We are just trying to be as inclusive as we possibly can and spread the love as much as we can. So Charlie, let's go ahead and open this thing up. What do you got for me today? All right, Jack, our first listener with a question today. He's starting to think that 12-0 and 0 is realistic. What are your thoughts on going 12-0 and 0 this year, and who has a better shot of beating us, Auburn or Florida? Okay, and we actually had a couple people that are asking about the Auburn-Florida question. We'll get to that part of the question here in just a moment. But let's start with the 12-0. and 0. Is that realistic? Well, if you guys go back to the preseason, if you guys listen to the uh, what was it, the preseason prediction show, I did predict us to go 12-0 and 0 when we kind of played the, the schedule game there and we're predicting the, the finish in the East and West. I didn't feel all that comfortable and confident in that pick because I feel like there was probably a loss somewhere on that schedule. But when I looked at the schedule, each of those 12 regular season games, I could not sit there in the preseason and say, yes, that team is better than us. We're going to lose to that team. It doesn't mean that we couldn't lose to one of those teams. I just could predict before the season, yes, that team is going to be able to be, they're better than us. They're going to beat us. So I predicted a 12-0 season. So I would have to say, yeah, I, I still think it's realistic. I actually made me feel a little bit more comfortable saying that because I'm feeling better about the possibility of going 12-0 with each passing week as we get more and more data points from the teams left on our schedule. I mean, if you look at our schedule, you cannot overlook anybody. Uh, Kirby said it, he said it fantastic, he said it in this, this amazing way last week in one of the press conferences, I think it was maybe the Tuesday press conference, we asked him about, are you nervous that Tennessee might come out within the bye week with nothing to lose? And he's like, every team is dangerous. Every single team is dangerous. And I totally buy into that. Any given team in college football, when you're dealing with 18 and 20 year old young men, they're not always going to be up for every game. So every single week could be a week where you lose a game, to a, even to an inferior opponent. We've seen with Ohio State in years past. A lot of teams, Clemson almost North Carolina a couple weeks ago. We see it. Uh, so I don't want to overlook anybody, but if you look at our, the rest of our schedule, there's four games I think you would look at and say, okay, these are the games we've really got to be ready for. Obviously at Auburn, the Florida game in Jacksonville, Missouri maybe to a lesser degree, but still that's one you got to watch. They're playing some good football right now. And then Texas A&M, who's not particularly playing great right now, but still a good soft football team with a good coaching staff. Those four games. But if you ask me right now to predict who's going to win each of those four games, I'm still going with Georgia. I'm still going with our football team because I think while we certainly have some issues that we are continuing to work ourselves through, we are better than each of those teams. I think actually we match up pretty well with each of those teams. Uh, and going 12 and 0 is hard. It's really hard for me to predict that. When I did that before the season, that was kind of a sticking point for me. It was kind of like, man, like it's just so hard to go 12 and 0 and be ready to play each and every week of the regular season. But we made it through the Notre Dame game. We've still got a couple of land, potential landmines left on our schedule, but. After watching these teams through their first five or six games, I feel like we are better than each of those teams. Doesn't mean we're going to win each of them, but I do think that we're better than each of those teams. So I think it's certainly a realistic possibility. I can't sit here and say, oh yeah, it's definitely going to happen. I'm not going to definitively say that, but I will say it's it's a realistic possibility. Now, as far as what's the tougher game, Auburn or Florida, we've got a couple questions on this one. And I going back to the preseason when I was talking about the schedule and we were ranking the, the difficulty of each game on the schedule, I had Auburn as the toughest game on our schedule in the preseason, and I am sticking by that. I'm not necessarily saying they are the best team left on our schedule. Florida did beat them straight up, although... Florida did have that game at home, 
which obviously makes a difference. But I think it's fair to say that Florida might be a slightly better team than Auburn right now, a more complete team than Auburn right now. Auburn offensively is having issues, especially the quarterback position with a true freshman. But I will say this. The Auburn team we will face on November the 16th will be in a different place, a different version of that Auburn team than the version that Florida played on October 5th this past weekend. Bo Nix is not there yet. He can do it in 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 spurts. But he's not ready to be a complete player, game in, game out, series in, series out. He's not there. And I'm not saying he's going to be there by November 16th, but he'll be closer to that point by November 16th. And you also got to factor in that we're playing Auburn on the road. And another factor about that game that I don't really hear a lot of people talking about is that Auburn is going to be coming off a bye week when we play them after we have what is shaping up to be a pretty big Eastern Division matchup against Missouri. Anytime you have a bye week, that is a major advantage. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that with South Carolina this week. They have a bye week coming into this game here in Athens. And we are way better than South Carolina, but that certainly, I think, has the potential to make this game a little bit more competitive than it might otherwise be. And I think that's a major advantage coming into that game for the Auburn Tigers. Uh, now, Florida, on the other hand, like they're still a, uh, they might be better than Auburn, but they're still a very flawed team, and they don't really match up that well with us. That's why we've beaten them by a combined score of 78-24 to over the past two seasons, plus the game's on a neutral site. So just the situation where that game is set up, the fact that it's on the road, I think makes that Auburn matchup maybe slightly more difficult than the one against Florida. Missouri, I don't know if Missouri's quite on Florida's level right now, but that's still going to be a tough matchup. They also have a, a bye week before us coming into that game, plus that's kind of sandwiched right between Florida and Auburn. So that's another tough matchup to look at there. But I think you're right saying Auburn and Florida are probably the two toughest games left on the schedule. But I'll give the slight edge to Auburn being a little bit tougher just again because of the, the location of that game and the fact that Auburn has that bye week coming in the game. Now, Florida does have a bye week coming into the Jacksonville game as well, but so do we. So it's kind of neutralized there. But it's a fair question. I would go Auburn by a hair. All right. Next up, Charlie and Seth have similar questions. They want your opinion on us running more of a hurry-up offense. They said that in Kirby's first year, we tended to score pretty well when running an up-tempo offense and that we seem to have a lot of success in two-minute situations. So, have you seen defenses doing things differently when we're running more of a hurry-up, no-huddle offense? And why don't we run hurry-up more often? This is a popular question right now, and it's a good question, and it deserves some discussion. Because I'm with you guys. Jake is obviously more comfortable in that setup, running out of the shotgun, going more tempo. And we do it tactically at times. Like, we did it at times against Tennessee. We did it a little bit against Notre Dame, not near as much. We did it at times in the second half against Notre Dame. But while we do it tactically at times, it's not a defining feature of our, our offense. That's certainly the case. I think partly that's due to Kirby's background as a defensive coach. Obviously, he wants this defense to be put in the best situation possible. He thinks defense is a key to winning football games, which it is. And to put them in the best position possible, sometimes that means having your offense stay on the field a little bit longer and giving your defense a rest. A lot of these offenses that put up you know, incredible point totals week in and week out, like Oklahoma, they don't match up a great defensive play because you know, their offense might score in 45 seconds. The defense is right back on the field. They don't have a ton of depth anyway. And so the defense is worn out and gassed, and they give a bunch of points as well. So it becomes a shootout. So I think that's actually a big reason why Kirby doesn't want us to go up-tempo more consistently than we do. But again, Jake is obviously comfortable in that setup, in those situations. He does it with great success. He's very effective in that role. 
And, and yet we've had a lot of success with two-minute situations, primarily because what happens, though, is defenses are playing softer coverages in those situations. So as to not give up a big scoring play right before the half or right at the end of the game, which is when you typically are in those two-minute, that's actually when you are in those two-minute situations. And Jake excels at knowing where his outlets are and taking the check down. He's very much the guy that, that subscribes the notion of you can't go broke taking a profit. I'm thinking about Florida last year. Right before the half, it's a close game. We're up 10-7. We go to the two-minute drill. And what does Jake do? He takes the check down. He takes the outlet passes. It was four consecutive passes to Isaac Nauta. Most of those were just basically out there in the flat. Nauta was able to turn up the field and, and get some yards after the catch. He wasn't the primary receiver on any of those plays, but Jake was able to find him after seeing the coverage that Florida was playing. And then I think we hit a hit a ball to Miko for like nine yards to set up a field goal right before the half to get a critical three points going the half to go up 13-7. No, we didn't get a touchdown there. But yes, we were able to take advantage of what Florida was doing. They were playing that softer coverage, trying to not let us hit anything over the top. Because guys, that's what defenses do. We, we don't run the two-minute drill as a rule because defenses don't play those coverage, they don't play that way as a rule throughout a game. And Florida's the same way. Florida's a very aggressive defense. They play a lot of press man coverage. But in that situation, the two-minute drill, they were playing more off our receivers in, in kind of a softer zone. We were able to take the underneath routes and get some yards if they catch there and go down the field enough to kick a field goal right before the half. So, again, I, I do think we need to work it in more. I would like to see us go up-tempo a little bit more consistently because I think Jake does really well in that setup. But defenses are not going to play you the same way they do in a two-minute situation throughout other parts of the game. That's just not what they're going to do. They're going to go with what they do more philosophically on a down-to-down -down basis. The two-minute drill is kind of a different situation where they don't want to get beat over the top, so they play a little softer behind that. And again, Jake just does a really good job of taking those underneath routes, knowing where to go, where his outlets are. And I'm not saying he won't do a good job with it during other times during the game. He will because he gets to get in that, that rhythm, and he always knows what defenses are trying to do, or at least most of the time knows what defenses are trying to do to him. But I just don't know if it will look exactly the same outside of those two-minute situations. All right. Next up, Dalton says, Was it just me, or did our offense look so much better playing from the spread? Fromm looked crazy comfortable taking five to seven step drops. What's your opinion? Dalton, I do not think you're crazy at all, my friend. Not at all. So it's a great point here. Jake excels playing that shotgun spread, kind of related to what we were just talking about there. I think a big part of that is that he doesn't have to turn his back to the defense. What makes Jake Jake Fromm is his ability to recognize, identify what defense are trying to do, and to know exactly where to go with the football and how to attack a defense based on what coverage and what formation and what personnel grouping they're out there with. And so when he doesn't have to turn his back to the defense, he can do that a little bit more easily. He has more time to do that, to diagnose what the defense is doing from the snap. So I've been saying this for a while now, and if Saturday was any indication, our coaches, it seems like, are finally realizing it too. I know it's a very small little sample size to work with there, and I don't want to draw any definitive conclusions off that. I'm not ready to say that yet, but it at least seems like our coaches are starting to move in the right direction. Maybe that was just a one game plan specific type game. Uh, I don't know, but I'm certainly very hopeful and encouraged by what we saw on Saturday that that's something that we're going to carry into the future because I think our coach after the Notre Dame game I don't want to say they got scared but they realized if we want to accomplish the goals that we have set up before this team the rest of the way we're going to have to allow our third year starting quarterback to go out there and make some plays make the plays that he can make so uh, obviously watching it we drastically cut down the snaps we took under center I mentioned that in the recap show we drastically cut down on the uh amount of times we used our 12 personnel groupings out there as well. We used it at times, but we certainly did not use the 12 personnel nearly as often as we had through the first couple of weeks of the season. All right. 
Jamil asks, which players have surprised you on offense and defense so far? And also, who has not lived up to your expectations on both sides of the ball thus far? Okay, a surprising player on offense. This is a tough one for me because our offense right now has kind of been about what I expected it to be. If I had to dig deep here, and this is really just kind of grasping at straws, Maybe, uh, I would say, Zamir White, Zeus, looking as strong as he has in limited opportunities. I know he hasn't got a ton of carries. And I, I, I didn't write him off before the season, but I wasn't ready to say, without knowing more about his injury situation, that he was going to come in and make a big impact early on. He hasn't made a major impact this point. He saw his most extensive playing time, at least early in, uh, in, the, in the game when the game was still in doubt against Tennessee on Saturday. So that makes you believe that he's going to be a little bit more of our plan, a part of our plans moving forward. But just, you know, when he has got opportunities, I think he has looked strong. He's looked confident out there. He's running with, with great physicality and great toughness. He looks athletic. He looks like he's going to be a big-time running back for us. So if I had to go with a surprise offensively, I would say Zeus, looking as, as good as he has. Uh, on defense, I'm going to go with Aziz Ojolari on this one. I, I thought Aziz would have a good year for us based off what we saw uh, from him in the Sugar Bowl, which is his first action as a Georgia Bulldog. But I thought a guy like Jermaine Johnson and even Nolan Smith, and Nolan's been very good for us. He has been an impact player at times. But I thought those two might have a chance to make more of an impact early on this season than Aziz. But, man, I was totally wrong. Aziz is a baller. He's a flat-out baller right now. He is the most complete outside linebacker we have uh, in terms of playing the run and also rushing the pass. I think right now he's tied for second in the SEC in sacks at 3.5. I think he's just a half a sack behind the leaders right now. So he, uh, he has been a flat-out beast for us. And even when he's not actually getting the sack, he has affected the quarterback multiple times without actually having anything go into the stat book. So I think he's been a beast for us. And the crazy thing is he is only a redshirt freshman. It's crazy. When I went back and watched the tape of the Tennessee game after coming back home, just looking at this guy, his physical prof profile, this is a redshirt freshman. And this dude is jacked up. He's athletic. can get after the passer. He's got a really nice set of, uh, of pass rushing moves. He can get you the speed rush, get you the bull rush, get you a little swim move. So I've just been overwhelmed by how good he has looked to this point in the season as such a young player. Uh, disappointing on offense. Again, this was a tough, this is a tough one for me because the offense has been a lot of, of what I expected it to be. But maybe, uh, it's not like a player that's disappointed me. I would say maybe one thing that's disappointing about our offense is that we are not finding more ways to get James Cook involved. And I know that's a difficult task when you have so many running backs to try to get touches. When you have a guy like DeAndre Swift, you can do a lot of things, a lot of the same things that James Cook can do in the passing game. It's tough to get Cook involved. But I do think that James Cook is one of our best playmakers. And I really want us to try to find ways to get this guy involved. And it's tough to kind of split all these carries. You got a lot of guys that need touches. But he is a playmaker. Of course. He's one of our biggest weapons offensively, and right now I don't think we've made enough use of him. I think we have another question about him later on, so I'm going to hold further discussion until we get to that question. Uh, and disappointing on defense. And look, I, I really hate to use the term disappointed because all these guys are still young, and they're still trying to find their roles. But Adam Anderson is a guy that I was hoping, I had some hope that he would put on a little bit more weight and become more of a, of a three-down type outside linebacker. But it just hasn't happened for him yet. I still think he's one of the best pass rushers on our team in terms of just like pin your ears back and purely going after the passer with his speed and his athleticism. But right now, he's actually like he he started the season in the in the dime package uh, as kind of like a, a pass rusher spy extraordinaire there. And he's kind of lost that role recently to Jermaine Johnson. You, we haven't seen him on the field much at all. He's one of our most athletic players on defense. So. I really want to see Adam get back involved in things. I think he does bring a lot to the table in terms of his versatility, especially in those third-down situations and those dying packages. 
but he certainly has not seen the field as much as I thought he would and has not made near as much of an impact as I, as I was hoping he might be able to in his sophomore campaign. All right. Next up, Jay Campbell wants to know your thoughts on Georgia's slow starts. And boy, was that ugly on Saturday. It was not fun to watch. Uh, How also, nervous were you? Did you ever like feel that game was in doubt? I mean... Like, you I thought that we were in danger of losing in well, the first half. not really. I just didn't want it to be embarrassing. So... And you like, well, it's like the Notre Dame situation. Like you realize that we have to, even if we just win by a touchdown, it's not good enough anymore. Especially right. against Tennessee, like exactly. you knew we had to blow them out. So, yeah. and he also says, is there anything to the theory that Georgia's coaching staff struggles in both pre, in both game prep, excuse me, and in-game adjustments because of its youth and inexperience? I don't really buy that. I know that's become a popular narrative, especially after the Notre Dame game, and we were kind of struggling out the gates there in the first half. I don't really necessarily buy that. I mean, even going back to when Jim Cheney was our offensive coordinator for a couple of years, I always felt like offensively, we had great game plans coming into just about every single game, but where we struggled was offensively making adjustments. When the defense is adjusted to what our game plan was, what we did coming out of the gates, I thought Jim Cheney really struggled to actually adjust in game. I thought it was kind of the, the, the flip side for our defensive coaches. I thought that, that we, we, it's not that we had bad game plans coming into games, but I thought we excelled more in making those in-game adjustments. Yes, with the obvious exceptions of the two games since Alabama, the national championship game, when Tua came into that game, we didn't adjust well in the second half, and then when Jalen Hurts comes in the game, the SEC title game last year, we didn't make those adjustments there. Uh, but the thing about the national championship game, like it was tough to make adjustments that halfway. Well, we really couldn't make adjustments that half because we were really containing them very well. We, we, we had Hurts' number. We had no idea that Tua wasn't come out there in the second half. And uh, now we did not adjust enough in the second half, but we clearly were not prepared for Tua Tungavailoa to come in there and, and play very much in that game. And how could we have been? He hadn't really done that all year in any sort of big game situation. In the SEC championship last year, it was more about being gassed on defense. We didn't have near as much depth as we had this year defensively late in that game we just got gas our offense couldn't stay on the field and couldn't convert third downs and then another fact that people don't really talk about was DeAndre Walker being hurt late in that game think about Jalen Hurts he was able to, to break contain and make some plays with his legs out wide uh, on the perimeter there and DeAndre Walker if he was in that game I have a I have a sneaking suspicion that I don't think Hurts would have been as successful in those situations but Walker was out and again we didn't have the death behind him that we have this year so that certainly hurts. We didn't have an Aziz Ojolari ready to go out there. We didn't have a Jermaine Johnson out there. Adam Anderson was on the team, but he was still a young pup and wasn't out there in those standard down situations. So I think that hurt us. But going back like defensively, think about some of the games where we did make great adjustments. Think about Notre Dame this year. Uh, yeah, they, they came out with a really good game plan offensively, getting Cole Komet involved. We had no way to know Cole Komet was going to be that big uh, of a featured player for them because he hadn't been at any point in his career. It was his first action of the year. But going in the half, we really adjusted, came out, and, and more or less shut them out or shut them down significantly in the second half. Uh, Tennessee, yeah, they, they hit some big plays early on Saturday, but we held them to zero yards passing. I think it was like seven minutes ago in the fourth quarter. Uh, completely shut them down. They could, they obviously got no points in the second half. And go back to Oklahoma in the Rose Bowl. They had, I don't want to say they had their way with us in the first half, but we were having a lot of trouble stopping that Oklahoma offense in the first half of that Rose Bowl game. But coming on the second half and didn't completely shut them down, but made enough stops and were much more competitive defensively than we were in the first half. So I think our defensive coaches have done a really good job of making adjustments 
throughout uh, the past couple of years. So I, I don't know if I buy that as much. I think the last two games, I know it's kind of recency bias, I think, on, on a lot of people's part. Looking at the Notre Dame game, looking at Tennessee, and say, okay, well, at least two games, we started slowly. Well, the first couple of games here, we didn't. And that hasn't really been an issue for us the past couple of years outside of maybe the LSU game in Baton Rouge uh, and maybe the Auburn game in 2017 uh, on the Plains there. So I'm not sure that I'm ready to buy that yet. I know the last two games have looked like that. But that hasn't really been a much of an issue over the past two plus years. And before we get to our next question, I do want to remind you guys about my bookie. We got the win and the cover last week versus Tennessee. Don't miss the action this week with South Carolina coming to town. It's another big line, but my bookie will give you the most competitive line out there. My bookie also has that extra something for your enjoyment. Not only sides and totals, but quarters and halves as well as in-game action. And of course, the Bulldogs to win it all. And that just scratches the surface. We've teamed up with my bookie this October to give you this great offer. Sign up now at mybookie.ag and use the promo code OVERTIME and they will match your first deposit. Again, promo code OVERTIME and new users get their first deposit doubled, mybookie.ag. You play, you win, you get paid. All right. Well, Thomas also thinks that James Cook should be could or should be getting the ball more like you just said a few minutes ago. So he wants to know why aren't we seeing more of James Cook? And he also thinks that Cook should be, could be taking some of the throws rather than Swift in order to protect Swift since he is our number one. We do not need him getting injured. No, we don't need DeAndre Swift getting hurt, but when you have... We don't need him getting hurt because he is such a great playmaker. So I don't want to take carries or touches away from DeAndre Swift. I mean, if you're playing football, there's always a risk of getting hurt. I totally understand we don't want him to get hurt, and that makes sense. But we've got to find ways to get the guy to the football. And this is a tough one for me. It's a great question because I don't entirely get it myself, Thomas. I really don't. Thanks for the question, man. Uh, going back to what I was saying a few minutes ago, I think the biggest issue with this is that we have a lot of guys that we want to get the ball to. But James Cook, in my opinion, is, or at least should be, one of those guys. He has dynamic playmaking ability. He really does. And right now, the only two ways to really get him the ball are on jet sweeps or those kind of arc motion swing passes. Those are really the two primary ways that we're getting him touches. What I would like to see personally, and I, I'm not a coach on the Georgia football staff. They are infinitely smarter than me. They know way more about football than I do. You've got to give them that credit. But I would really like to see us use him out of the backfield, getting matched up on linebackers on option routes. I think he's a complete mismatch in those situations. And I think he could show some of that dynamic playmaking ability if we get him matched up in the correct situation. We're basically, we're just doing little swing passes or put, putting him in jet motion, flat jet motion, and taking the, the fly sweep there. And great, that's a way to get him a touch here and there. But I think there are ways that we can use him more effectively. And honestly, personnel usage offensively has been my biggest issue with our coaching staff since Kirby's tenure began in 2017. Go back to year one. Tyler, Tyler Catalina had a really tough year for us at offensive tackle because he was playing out of position. Tyler Catalina was a guard all the way, but we were forcing him to play at, at tackle, which certainly did not suit him at all. And he had a rough year. This guy spent a couple years in the NFL because he actually has some value. He's a good player just playing out of position. I couldn't quite understand why in that first year we felt it was necessary to have Tyler Catalina at tackle and Isaiah Wynn at guard. And then when Catalina moves on, we move Wynn out to tackle because we think that's his better position. And oh, by the way, he's playing that in the NFL for the Patriots right now when he's not injured. I never understood that. And I trust Sam Pittman. I mean, this guy knows, again, way more about offensive line play than I do. 
But in my opinion, Isaiah Wynn was a better tackle than he was guard, and Catalina was a better guard than he was tackle. So why was Wynn playing guard and Catalina playing tackle? It just never made sense to me in that season. But it's not just that. I mean, tight end usage over the past couple of years, that's long been an issue. James Cook right now, I think Miko was a guy that we didn't fully take advantage of what Miko Harbin brought to the table. We certainly designed some things to take advantage of his speed, but I think he could have been a far more dynamic and consistent offensive threat for us if we would have used him properly. I don't think we really used him properly at all coming out of the slot. So to me, that has been my biggest issue with our offensive coaching staff is just simply personnel usage. And I've, I, I had high hopes that James Coley would correct some of those issues. And and maybe he will. It's still only a couple games into the into the year. But James Cook right now, I think, is being seriously underutilized. We've got to find ways to get this guy the ball. All right. Next up, Dan asks, why do we only throw to the sideline if the pass has 15 or more yards of air to travel? We see plenty of teams have success running routes as simple deep slants. Why isn't Fromm trusted to utilize the middle of the field? That's a very fair question, and that's a great question. So give me a chance here to talk a little bit of X and O's. And uh, I think the big answer here is that it's all about the coverages that we typically see offensively. Teams like to try to outnumber us in the box. We all know that. But when you do that, when you bring a safety down in the box to get a numbers advantage, what does is it limits the type of coverages that the defense can play behind it when they only have a single high safety. So what we typically see is we see a ton of cover three, and we also see a lot of man free, which if you're not familiar with man free, I think I talked about this a little bit last week. That's where everyone is playing man across the board underneath, and then you have one deep free safety playing center field. So if we see a lot of cover three, which is that's probably the covers we see the most, the two primary ways to attack cover three with the pass are with four verticals, because there's only three deep defenders, and if you run four vertical routes, somebody should be open. So that's that's probably the primary way to attack cover three. But the other way to do that would be outbreaking routes, because there were only four underneath defenders. And the sidelines, that's where you have some weaknesses, some vulnerabilities in, in a cover three defense. And there's also typically more traffic in the middle of the field where more things can go wrong because there's just more defenders and more bodies. And then uh, against man coverage, when we see man free or any other variation of man coverage, nine routes are really difficult to defend. And a nine route guy's on the route tree, that's just a go route. That's a, a, a what some people call a, a deep ball, right? Where you just run straight down the field. And those are difficult to defend because you can play off the leverage of the cornerback. If the cornerback's playing over the top, you run the back shoulder. If he's playing to defend the back shoulder, you go over the top and beat him deep. Uh, and so again, back shoulders, they're very difficult to stop in those situations because the number one thing defensive backs don't want to do is they don't want to get beat over the top. They're coached to not get beat deep. Do not let someone get vertical on you. So if that's the case, they're trying to play over the top of you to not let you get vertical on them, then the back shoulder play is extraordinarily difficult to stop because they're they're not in position to make a play on that. So I really, it comes down to just the coverages we see. I know it's, it seems predictable and it gets annoying sometimes just watch us run the same routes over and over, but we do that for a reason. It's not because we just want to. It's because that's the best way to attack the coverages that we see most games, whether it's cover three or some variation of man coverage. Okay. Next up, Drill Dog says, as we've already mentioned, Aziz Ojolari is looking like a grown man in his first year as a starter, but we need someone on the opposite side of the defensive line that is as consistent as he is. So thoughts on that. And he also wants to know why no one is talking about the fact that we have not allowed a single rushing touchdown this year. Again, uh, just to repeat myself on Aziz, Aziz is a monster. It's blowing my mind right now. This guy's a registered freshman. He's 
going to be a, a major NFL player at some point, in my opinion. Uh, again, he's only a half second away from the SEC lead right now. But the thing is, on mo- talking about like him needing a running mate on the other side, well, on most standard downs, we're only playing with one outside linebacker pass rusher on the field. So we probably aren't going to have someone else be as consistent of a pass rusher as he has been for us in those standard down situations. Because on the other side, you usually have a five-tech defensive end, whether it's Malik Herring, David Marshall, or Justin Young out there. I think that Malik Herring can be that guy. I think he's the most talented of that defensive end trio that we're rushing out there. But uh, right now, he's a guy that's still trying to work himself back into Kirby's good graces. What Didn't really play at all. I don't think he played a snap against Vanderbilt. But he's worked himself back into the rotation. He was, he's been starting the past couple games. And he has the talent to be that guy. I think long term, he has more talent than even a guy like Jonathan Ledbetter, who made the Dolphins roster this year. So I think Herring can be that guy, but he's a different player. The five tech even spins a different position than what Aziz plays. Herring at the five tech is not supposed to be or not expected to be as much of a pass rusher. It's more of a run stuffing, set the edge kind of position. So I don't know with really any of our five tech even spins if you're going to have an offensive coordinator who's going to think he has to scheme up a way to double team the other side, which might free up Aziz Ojolari because those guys just aren't expected to do the same things that Aziz is supposed to do. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right. Next up, Jamie touches on officiating, which you and Jack were ranting and raving about on Saturday during the game. So Jamie wants to know, why is officiating such an issue across the league, and when will they start being held accountable? It's just so frustrating right now, man. Like, I... Charlie, you know me. You know you've been watching football with me for a long time. You, how do I feel about officials? Um, they're equal to the weathermen and weather women. Yes. Okay. That's that more or less what I say. If they get it wrong, that nothing happens. Yes. Yes. What I always say, and you kind of butchered that completely. No, but but just that's essentially what I say, right? You didn't butcher you that. Asked. And no, I tried and, to explain. And you, you responded. Thank you very much for your help. But what I, what I always say is that the only people that can be so consistently wrong in their given profession and still somehow miraculously have jobs are weathermen slash weatherwomen, right? Mm-hmm. And officials. They're the only, that's the only two, there's only two professions I can think of where you are allowed to be consistently wrong and still have a job, right? I mean, what, what other job can you be so wrong so often and still be employed. It, it just doesn't happen. It's crazy. It's so frustrating. I will say these guys do their best. They do the absolute best they can. I, I'm not one of those conspiracy theorists out there that thinks people are out to get us or there's some grand conspiracy against Georgia. I, I do think that there are officials who are influenced subconsciously by you know maybe like the Bama brand or something like that. But I'm not trying to attack uh, to attack their integrity. I don't think they're getting paid under the table or anything like that. But it, it is an issue. It is a major issue, not just across the SEC, but all of college and really all sports in general. Officials just, as a rule, are just not good at what they do, in my opinion. They drive me insane. But it's not just the SEC and college football. The Pac-12 has had some well-documented issues in the, in the past. I mean, all conferences have their issues. 
But the SEC is certainly a conference that has some issues with its officiating. But the reason I think it's become an issue is because the quality of the pool of candidates has weakened dramatically. Who wants that job? Charlie, would you ever want to be an official, a referee? No. Why would you want that job? You're always criticized. Best case scenario is that no one notices you. But you're always going to make someone mad because you're going to call a penalty against someone. Even if it's the right call, they're going to be pissed off because you called a penalty on their team. And a lot of the job is also open to interpretation. There's a couple of those plays that are judgment calls, um, and there is interpretation. There's room for that. And when you when there's room for interpretation and there's some kind of vagueness in the rules at times, you're going to open yourself up to criticism. So, so nobody wants that job. And it's not a year-round gig for most of these guys. So you also have to have another job. It's kind of like a side job you do as a passion project. And what kind of passion project involves you getting your integrity questioned, getting ripped every which way? You're also not paid particularly well. And so for all those reasons, I, I don't think accountability, I don't think it's ever going to happen to the degree that it should and that we want it to. Because there are just so few quality candidates to replace the officials that we have in place right now. So if you hold them accountable and you eventually fire them, who do you replace them with? That, that's, that's the question that these leagues have to answer. Accountability depends on having options and competition to replace them with. This is why Kirby, you know, bringing back to a football example here, this is why Kirby always pushes competition. If a player is not getting the job done, well, we have another player, we have another five-star player right behind you that can do the job just as well as you, if not better than you. So in those situations, when you have depth and you have a better pool of candidates, you can afford to hold people accountable. But if you don't have quality behind the guys that you have right now, that threat rings kind of hollow. And this is why leagues take criticizing referees so seriously and they, and they kind of bring down the hammer with the punishments when you criticize referees. It's because they know they need these refs. This is the best they have to work with. And the pickings are very slim behind them, which is why you don't see more accountability and more transparency in what leagues do to officials, if anything, because there's just no one to replace them with. So I think it's a pipe dream to everything. There's going to be real accountability with officials because there's just not enough people that want to do that job. And that's the issue. I wish in an ideal world, there'd be more accountability. I wish those officials against tennis that, that were there in the Tennessee game, I wish they got fired. Like they, they had no clue what was going on. Like somebody asked me on Twitter, and like my explanation for like how like what was going on out there was like obviously they must have been imported from Canada. Like that that's the only explanation. Like these, this is the Canadian football and now crew suddenly out here. They're Canadian. Well, I mean, it was like a Canadian football league crew out there. Like, they had no idea what was going on. Like even like when they got the call right, it took them twenty minutes to discuss what was going on, and they couldn't quite explain what they're doing. It was just awful. It was terrible. Those guys should not be out there officiating college football games in the SEC, the premier conference in college football. But, again, there's just not many options behind them. This is the best the SEC has to work with, and we're just, unfortunately, going to have to live with that side of it. It sucks, but it is what it is. And I hate that saying, but it is what it is. All right. Next up, Cliff is asking, why did they stop feeding Zamir White the ball when he was killing it for what seemed like 10-plus yards a run? It was maddening to him. What about you? Yeah, I totally get that, Cliff. It's a good point, my man. I appreciate the thoughts, as always. But my response to that is just simply, who are you going to take carries away from? Chris and I talked about this a little bit on the, the recap show, but i just say it again. Like, who are you taking carries away from? I, I agree that Zamir is a great player, and I'd love to get him more carries, but those carries have to come from somebody. Uh, you, know, you have to say Brian Harry in that game was also running like a man possessed. If Zeus can get more carries, you think it's going to come out of the carries that Harrion's getting. But in that game, Brian Herring was playing like a madman. I, I mentioned on the recap show that 40-plus, I think it was a 41-yard run he had. 
That was the best run I've seen from a Georgia running back this season. Uh, and that guy, that, that was just straight up willpower on Brian Herring's part. I mean, both those guys, Zamir and Brian, averaged eight yards a carry. I think Zamir was 8.1 and Herring was at eight yards flat. So essentially the same level of production. So the only way that Zamir is going to get more carries, if you're not going to take carries away from Swift and you don't want to take him away from Herring in the Tennessee game, because he was playing so well and running the ball so with so much physicality, the only way is Zeus, Zeus is going to get more carries in that situation is for our team to just run the ball more. But we talked about how we wanted to put more on Fromm for the past two weeks after the Notre Dame game, so we need to go to the air more and trust him more. So it's hard to complain about not running the ball more when Jake Fromm was playing as well as Jake Fromm was playing. So it's just a tough situation. We have, again, so many guys, we want to get touches. And it's just really hard when we don't run that up-tempo type offense consistently where we don't run a ton. We don't run 70, 80 plays a game. We, if we get to 65, that's a great game for us in terms of our, our play total. So it's tough. But I hear you, though, Cliff. I really hear you, man. Zeus was running extremely well, and I do think he's going to get more and more carries as the season progresses. If I had to predict, I'd say he's going to start taking more of those carries from Harry in as we get further and further in the season. All right. Cliff also wants to know, what's your early read on the game in Baton Rouge between the Gators and the Bayou Bengals? And also, Florida's defense is really impressive, and LSU has been underwhelming, to put it nicely. So, if the Gators can slow down their passing game, big if, this game isn't as lopsided as it may seem. What do you think? Yeah, I'm interested to see if Florida's pass rushers can consistently affect Burrow. I think there's a chance they can. And I'm with you. I, my first thought about this game, my initial thought after the Auburn game when Florida got that win, was that, oh, uh, who cares? They're going to get blown up by LSU. But the more I think about it, I'm, I'm kind of with you, Cliff. I think this might be a better game and a more competitive game than people think. I know f the issue right now is I'm not sure Florida can score the LSU. But that Florida defense, there are areas where they match up pretty well with LSU. Right now, LSU is has not been a, an effective running football team. They have not been able to run the football with any sort of consistency whatsoever. They haven't really tried, to be honest, because they're just throwing the football all over the yard. And the strength of the Florida defense is, number one, their pass rush, and number two, their cornerbacks. So that kind of that's a, that's a great matchup for them against this LSU offense that has thrown the ball a lot. And LSU's offensive line, they've been good, but it's not an elite offensive line. I'm not sure they're ready for some of the pass rush that Florida's going to put out, there, especially if uh, Zaniga is ready to go and he's 100%, which I, it looks like he might be. Uh, you match him up with, with Grenard there on the edge, that could cause some issues for that LSU offense if they're able to consistently affect Joe Burrow when he's dropping back to throw the football. And yeah, they have some really good receivers. I talked about them before the season. This is when I predicted LSU was going to beat Bama and win the SEC West. I talked about how good those LSU receivers were. If they, just could, if they could really just open the offense a little bit more and find a way to get them the ball, those guys could make plays. And wow, has that happened. That They've been dominant out there. But Florida's cornerbacks are good. Marco Wilson, CJ Henderson, those guys are good. I think they might be slightly overrated. I don't know if they're as good as everyone thinks they are, but they are still very good corners. So it's going to be interesting to see how this Florida uh, defense matches up with what has been an explosive LSU offense. LSU has been one-dimensional, which makes it a little bit easier for Florida to, to defend them. And I'm not sure LSU has really gone up against an elite defense. Texas, not elite defense. Vanderbilt, not elite defense. And all the little sisters of the poor they played, not elite defenses. Florida's going to be the first good defense. I'm not ready to call Florida's defense elite, but that's a at least a very good defense. It's going to be the first very good defense that LSU has faced. So it's, I'm very intrigued by that matchup on Saturday night. But in terms of LSU's defense not being as impressive as Florida's, 
I get you in terms of the points they get them. They gave up 38 points to Vanderbilt. Some of those were on were on uh, defensive scores though. But LSU's defense on the year, they're actually only giving up nine more yards a game than Florida is. And LSU's been dealing with a lot of injuries defensively. And Florida has had some injuries as well, but not like LSU. Uh, they've had some injuries in the secondary. They've had some injuries to pass rushers on the defensive line. They had a couple defensive linemen. Rashard Lawrence, one of them who might be the best defensive player, he, he missed a couple of games there. So it's not necessarily apples to apples there because LSU was not operating with a full deck through the first couple of weeks, really after week one especially after that Texas game. So, I mean, and if, and right now, if you look at it statistically, yeah, they're a little bit behind Florida's defense in terms of uh, total yardage allowed each game, but not all that far. But I, what I think you're going to see here is, is two good defenses with a lot of talent with and with LSU's offensive talent and their quarterback just being superior right now, plus the fact that LSU is at home at night in Death Valley. I like LSU in this one. I don't necessarily think it's going to be a blow like some people are predicting, but uh, I do like LSU to get the win here. Alrighty, last question for this week. Zach would like to know, what are your thoughts on Tay Crowder? Zach has been impressed with Tay Crowder so far this year. It's a great question, and I, I want to say, Zach, we love you, man. Zach's been a longtime listener. He's been a big supporter of ours. So, Zach, don't be a stranger, my man. We're going to have to get you on the show one of these pick shows uh, one of these weeks down the stretch here. So, hold me to that, Zach. But uh, you're right. Tay Crowder has been... He's been really good, man. Like He's not an elite linebacker. I'm not going to say that. He's probably not an NFL player, but he has come a long way from where he was, and this man deserves a lot of credit for that. I mean, this guy was a wide receiver at times in high school, was a running back coming into Georgia. When Kirby got here, Kirby knew pretty much right away that he was not going to play running back at Georgia with the guys that we had in the backfield. But he saw a good athlete and a guy that was willing to be coached and a guy that was willing to work. So he moves him over to the defense side of the ball, plays linebacker, and it's taking some time because it was not a natural position for him. Even like hitting someone like that, seeking out contact, was not natural for Tate. But he has grown so much. He's become more instinctive, more confident. He's striking better. And this is a guy that could have quit and run away. Could have gone to the transfer portal, left, done something different, gone somewhere else, but he didn't. He kept working, and it's paying off for him. Justin Young is another example of that this year. So I, I love these kind of stories. And I, and I think I said it on the recap show, right now, I would say he's not our most talented inside linebacker, but I would say right now he's playing like our most complete inside linebacker in terms of his ability to play the run, his ability to, to stay on the field in certain situations at times. We're, we're usually bringing a Kobe Dean or Channing Tindall into the game in those situations. But Tay is still a competent player, a competent linebacker in pass coverage, more so than Monty Rice is. Now, it could become Quay Walker and a Kobe Dean as, as the season continues to progress. Those guys could grow into our more, most complete linebackers. But right now, through five games, I think you make a strong argument that Tay Crowder has been our most complete linebacker. And this is a guy that I was saying, I was looking at our defense saying, if there was one player in our defense that was probably going to start the season but would lose his job by the time we got to the midpoint of the season, I, I was pointing at Tay Crowder. Now I'm not so sure. Now I'm not so sure because this guy is really playing well. He's grown tremendously. He's a totally different player than he was even last year. And it's night and day from where he was two years ago when he first started to get a little bit of playing time towards the end of the 2017 season. But uh, I'm really proud of him, really happy for him, and he's certainly been a big part of our defense and will continue to be a big part of our defense the rest of the way. But uh, all right, guys, that's it. We have now run out of questions. We've exhausted the mailbag for the week. We really appreciate everyone who sent in questions. If you haven't sent one in yet and you still have questions, feel free to hit us up on Twitter or uh, on email. That's gloryujapodcast at gmail.com or glory underscore UGA on Twitter. And we will do our best to answer those questions, even if they couldn't get on the show this week. But thanks for listening, guys. Really appreciate it. Remember, if you get a chance, rate and review our show. We would greatly appreciate that. 
But for Charlie, I'm Tyler. I'll be back later in the week with Curtis for our game preview show. And Charlie will be back for our Picks of the Week show on Friday. And as always, go dogs.